The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest back for a part two interview, Dr. Peter Infanti. He is dedicated to research and analysis of occupational and environmental health issues. Between 2002 and 2011, Dr. Infante was adjunct professor and professorial lecturer of environmental and occupational health at the George Washington University School of Public Health. Previously, he was the director of the Office of Carcinogen Identification and Classification at OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. During his 24 years in OSHA, he played a major role in determining cancer and other risks to workers during the development of standards for a number of toxic substances, including asbestos, arsenic, benzene, cadmium, ethylene oxide, formaldehyde, lead, and MDA. Prior to working at OSHA, he was employed by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, where he conducted epidemiological studies related to a number of carcinogens found in the workplace, including benzene, beryllium, and vinyl chloride. We are going to jump into our part two interview today, talking about more environmental toxins and their effect on rural communities in particular, and then we'll talk a little bit more about dietary components and cancer risk as well. Dr. Infante holds a Doctor of Public Health from the University of Michigan School of Public Health Department of Epidemiology, and he also received his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree from the Ohio State University. Dr. Infante, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, I wanted to bring our conversation back to the agricultural health study for a moment. This was a study that was done by the epidemiology branch of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And I'm always curious as a dietitian wondering about populations living in rural communities where much of our food is grown. And this particular study looked at individuals living in Iowa and North Carolina They recruited pesticide applicators in particular between the years of 1993 and 97. They did another follow-up later in, let's see, that was 99 to 2003, a follow-up telephone interview, and another telephone interview in 2009. Let's talk about what the agricultural health study found from an epidemiological perspective and what we can say to rural communities today about potential risk. Yes. Well, first of all, let me put it in the proper context. The study that you're referring to is the agricultural health study. That's like specifically the study was published in 2005 by DeRus and others. And there are several case control studies related to evaluating the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in relation to glyphosate, which is the main product in Roundup, which is used in these genetically uh, engineered crops. And these studies, you know, several of them show, several out of six that EPA cited, show 
statistically significant increases in the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Two of them show a dose response. One of them, the only one that evaluated latency, showed an increase with an increase in latency that was statistically significant. Now, when you look at that in relation to the agricultural health study is a different type of study called a cohort study where you enroll people in the study and then you follow them to see what they die from and determine the risk for various diseases, including specific cancers. And that study does not show an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or really much of any other cancer being elevated. The problem, though, with the study is is that the cohort, this is one of the major problems, the cohort hasn't been followed for a long enough period of time. You know, mm. And what do I mean by that? Well, from when the cohort was identified, and these are agricultural workers using pesticides, in this case it's, it's glyphosate, which is an herbicide, they were followed for between four and eight years for an average of about a little over six, maybe six and a half years. And it was a very young cohort, like about half of them were under the age of 50 that are followed in the cohort. And when you look at the results from that study, you find that only 3% of them were diagnosed with any cancer, say 3%. And if you look at U.S. males, 42% of them over a lifetime are diagnosed with an invasive cancer. And so... You say, well, when you look at the 3% in the cohort that's been identified and that you would expect in white males, which most of them were, 42%, that's one way of, of identifying the fact that the cohort hasn't started to die yet. So you haven't followed it for a long enough period of time. And so, you know, that's one indication that they're studying a cohort that let's say from when you look at this cohort, maybe between the ages of for the follow-up period after they were included in the cohort, because when they were included, they had to be cancer-free to be included. So let's say you follow them for a period of six to seven years, and they're younger than age 50. You're following them at ages between, let's say, just a little before 50 and a little after 50. You don't that's an age in which you don't start to see an exponential increase in cancer in the general population yet. You have to wait till they get a little older. Like you start seeing it maybe it starts at 55, you, 55 to 60, you start to see an upswing. So what it's telling you is you haven't followed them for a long enough period of time. It would be like studying prostate cancer in 30-year-olds. Well, 30-year-olds essentially... You know, it's very rare they don't get prostate cancer. If you want to study causes of prostate cancer, you have to include people that are 60 to 70 years when people are diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. So this cohort hasn't followed uh, people long enough to make an evaluation of what the cancer risk may be. So, you know, in my opinion, it's an, at this point, as follow up, it's an uninformative study. Okay. And yet, this is a study that's relied upon by, you know, Monsanto to say, oh, well, look, there's no cancer risk. Mm -hmm. Well, the study is inadequate to make that determination. You don't know if there's a cancer risk or not from it. Yeah. And I would say another problem with the study is that you always study in cancer in the group you're interested in. In this case, it was the agricultural workers that are using uh, glyphosate. 
then you compare them. You have a comparison group, and you're looking at the difference in cancer rates. Well, the problem with the study also is that 53% of the controls are known to be exposed to 2,4-D, another herbicide, which also carries with it an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you don't have like a clean comparison group. Mm-hmm. And whenever you do a, an analysis then of if you were exposed to glyphosate or not exposed to glyphosate, of those who were not exposed to glyphosate, 53% of them were exposed to 2,4-D, which also provides some evidence of an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And also, and you say, well, what do you mean provides some evidence? Well, there is some epidemiological studies of workers exposed to 2,4-D. There's some evidence of an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, including a meta-analysis that Monsanto supported that was published in 2016. It shows a significant increase in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma related to 2,4-D, about a 40% increase, which is about the same thing that was found for exposure to glyphosate Mm -hmm. and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The study is uninformative, and it should not be used to make a determination at this point. What I think is so important is what you bring to this conversation, because the average person, including myself, would just see the headlines that say, no increased risk, coming from a good source, the National Institutes of Health, looking at cancer risk among farm workers. So it really helps to have an epidemiologist put the headlines into perspective. And the headline that crossed my desk recently that caused me some concern was one that came out of a Beyond Pesticides report saying that despite science affirming its hazards, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has expanded the registration of the toxic herbicide mixture Enlist Duo, which contains both 2,4-D and glyphosate for use on genetically engineered cotton and extended its use on GE corn, soybean, and cotton, increasing from 15 states to 34 states. So there's going to be now an increased use We're going to add on another layer of toxic exposure. How is it that the EPA can allow both of those compounds in combination to be used when you yourself know that there's risk with both, and we don't even know what the risk is with them combined? Well, I don't know when EPA, when they made that decision to, and the reason they're using a combination is because the weeds that you want to kill with these herbicides, are becoming resistant to it. Right. So the glyphosate doesn't work by itself as well as it used to, so now you add another herbicide, 2,4-D, and they both show some evidence of an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you're saying, well, how could EPA do that? Well, I guess they're doing it. Does it make, you know, that's how they can do it. I guess the government can do what it wants. But the question is, is there some risk for particularly the farmers that are using these herbicides? And the answer is, it appears that there is, yes. Even by EPA's own cancer risk guidelines, there's evidence that EPA should consider glyphosate as providing some evidence, and specifically, according to their cancer risk guidelines, it should really have the designation of 
likely to be carcinogenic to humans. When you look at the data that are available and when you compare that with the EPA's risk assessment guidelines that they published in 2005, in my opinion, it's a bit irresponsible unless you're going to say, well, I don't know the engineering aspect of it. But if you want to say, well, that's is that the only thing that can be used, you know, I don't know. That's out of my area of expertise. But if you are going to allow it to be registered, then I think you have an obligation to warn the public and the farmers so that, you know, maybe they can choose those risks. But then you've got the problems with this building up in the food supply. And what do you tell people that are consuming foods? Is it possible today to have cereals and grains that do not contain glyphosate? Or water. Or water, yes. Well, there is a statement in its decision. The EPA stated that Enlist Duo, quote, meets the safety standard for the public, agricultural workers, and non-target plants and animal species. And this came out towards the middle of January. Of which year? Of 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I don't see how they can make that statement. It seems a bit contradictory because right now, the issue that they have and is before their science advisory panel is what is the evidence of carcinogenicity for for glyphosate? And they haven't concluded that document yet. Right. To say what it is. I mean, I have my own opinions about it. I think according to their own criteria, if they follow it and the evidence that's available, they should conclude that the glyphosate is likely to be carcinogenic. But aside from that, If in 2017 they're making statements that there's no harm, I don't see how they can do that when they're still in the process of evaluating uh, glyphosate, Mm -hmm. you know, and have that issue before their science advisory panel. And when I was at the, the last day of the meeting that was held in December of 2016, of the 10 individuals on the science advisory panel who expressed an opinion, six of the 10 of them thought there was some evidence that glyphosate caused cancer. Hmm. So, you know, that was a majority of the science advisory panel members who evaluated the draft document that EPA produced, you know, have concluded that there's some evidence of cancer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, does EPA, do they pay any attention to the science advisory panel? Was just Was this just a facade or what? How do they... I don't know where EPA goes. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Right. Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Peter Infante, 47 years of experience as an epidemiologist, also invited to serve on the EPA Science Advisory Panel looking at glyphosate, and then invited not to participate on the panel because the Crop Life America group, which is an organization made up of pesticide manufacturers and marketers, decided that you had a bias against pesticides. I'll just throw that in if our listeners did not hear about your history last week. Well, Dr. Infante, let's move on to some other issues that you've studied because you are an epidemiologist. You've also been involved in looking at other potential carcinogens in our environment and in our food supply. And in some conversations that we've had prior to the interview, you mentioned the issue of caffeine and pregnant women in particular. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your interest in this area 
and your study of the problem with this compound? Well, I have looked at the you know, epidemiological literature on caffeine and cancer risk, and I did this in relation to uh, a lawsuit in California under Prop 65 that would require manufacturers to label their products if they contain a chemical known to the state of California to cause cancer. And the issue here is then, well, acrylamide, which is there's there's sufficient evidence in experimental animals that that causes cancer, and that would be enough to label products containing acrylamide under California Prop 65. So when I looked at the data, as part of that proceeding, the thing that struck me was that there are only maybe a half a dozen studies that have evaluated the risk of childhood leukemia in relation to maternal coffee consumption during pregnancy. And those that have the high coffee consumption, I think like two to three cups or more a day during pregnancy, you see a significantly elevated risk of childhood leukemia in the majority of the studies. So I think that this should be, you know, the light bulb should go off. There should be concern from a public health standpoint about this exposure and the consumption of coffee during pregnancy. Exactly. Well, in the Dietary Guidelines Committee that spoke about caffeine, did they not look at the risk to pregnant women? When I looked at the document they had, I did not see any evaluation in the literature that they reviewed. I saw no evaluation of data looking at coffee consumption during pregnancy and risk of childhood leukemia. As I recall looking at it, and it was maybe, you know, less than a year ago. Right. Uh, it seemed like their uh, literature was devoid of evaluating that that exposure in, in relation to childhood leukemia. It's so interesting because what I recall from the Dietary Guidelines report was that coffee sort of got a little boost in terms of its health properties. You know, we've been reading about coffee drinkers having a lower risk, say, of liver cancer or type 2 diabetes Those are the things that have stuck with me, probably because I like to drink coffee, so I'm always looking for the, I'm a cherry picker, I'm looking for the good studies. But I think when we're dealing with pregnant women, this is such a special time in our life cycle, and if we've got a warning label on wine and other alcoholic beverages for pregnant women to avoid, it almost seems that with the increased popularity of coffee beverages over the last, say, 10 years, I think there should be a warning label for pregnant women not to drink coffee during this time. Just err on the side of safety. Well, I would say this. I think they should be informed, and I also feel that, you know, there should be, you know, an adequate evaluation of these data. Right. And, you know, scientists can have honest disagreements about epidemiological data or any kind of data, for that matter, toxicological data. But to me, I think there's enough evidence there that it needs to be taken seriously. There needs to be a evaluation of this exposure and response in terms of childhood leukemia specifically, and the public should be informed about this. You know, why take that chance when you're pregnant, even if it's one would say, well, it's not beyond a doubt. Exactly. Well, all right, fine. It's not beyond a doubt, but what do you... 
what evidence would it require to be beyond a doubt? It would require then, what do you want to say, more studies showing elevated risk of childhood leukemia among women that are high coffee consumers while they're pregnant? I mean, whatever happened to the concept of public health or whatever happened to the concept of informed consent? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are risks for everything that we do, and you hope that you pick and choose your risks and poisons as you wish to. I mean, people know the risks from cigarette smoking now, I would hope. They can choose to smoke if they want. But do they know the potential risks from coffee consumption or the potential risks from herbicides exposure? That's where I think the government has an obligation to step in, and so do the manufacturers, quite frankly. Why should it be left up to the government all the time? Right. And it's very important. We hear of all this push towards supporting free markets, but in order for free markets to work, we have to have an informed citizenry so that we can make decisions for our own health. Well, one would hope that would be the case. I mean, the, the whole concept of public health is to, if you think there's a problem, you study it, and if you identify a problem, then you intervene to take steps to correct it to lower the risk of whatever disease you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. You know, all too often we study and we restudy and we restudy, and we never take that step of implementing the knowledge, you know, like we were taught in schools of public health. And by the, we never take that step. I mean, often the government doesn't take the step, nor do the manufacturers who make the profits from that product. I mean, shouldn't they have an obligation to inform if they find that their product is exposure to it is related to an elevated risk of cancer or some other disease? Mm-hmm. Or should it always be left to the government? I mean, right. when I was at OSHA, in fact, I did have one, one company did come into the agency and say, hey, look, we have a problem with this chemical. We've done these studies of our workers. They have these bizarre uh, chromosomal aberrations, and we want you to know this. And I think, you know, that was pretty impressive to me. They came in to tell OSHA so that OSHA would do something about it to regulate it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way the system should work, hopefully. You know, if people had feelings of responsibility for their product and the harms it might have to the public. Something you brought up prior to our interview last week that I wanted to revisit, you mentioned three T's, turbulence, timidity, and tokenism, and how those three issues affect government agencies. Do you want to touch on those? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I want to, but, you know, having worked for the uh, government for uh, 27 years and most of the area in the regulatory area, the three T's, yeah, the the turbulence is that, gee, when a a hazard is identified, you know, know, the alarm goes off, oh, what are we going to do about this? And then, gee whiz, if we do something about it, who is it going to impact on, you know, economically? So then you start to get timid about doing anything because who it might affect and what are the consequences of that and, you know, what role is Congress going to play now? And they often step in and stop regulatory agencies from implementing the standards that need to be regulated because their constituency, uh, you know, gives them, unfortunately, you know, gives them campaign contributions and they're looking after uh, who's supporting them so they can get 
reelected. So they'll come to the agency. And so now you've got the timidity. What should we do? And then, you know, under the best case, a lot of times it's the tokenism. What you do is you drip a little bit of regulation out of the pipeline to do something, but not to the extent it should be done to protect the public. And, you know, that's what I consider the tokenism. Maybe, like, for example, let's take diesel exhaust, which we know causes lung cancer. I think a few years ago EPA issued a regulation to limit diesel exhaust to off-road vehicles like backhoes and things like that. Mm -hmm. They didn't issue any regulation, to my knowledge, to regulate on-road vehicles like trucks, school buses, all these other big vehicles, which are the major polluters in terms of diesel exhaust. Why wouldn't you want to go after the major source of the exposure to diesel exhaust and instead go after these off-road vehicles that don't create nearly as much? To me, that's an example of tokenism. Mm -hmm. Those are the three T's I've come to uh, realize in my experience. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to put the ball back in your court because I want you to have a chance to tell our listeners anything else. 47 years as an epidemiologist is a long time, and it will generate a lot of insight. What do you want our listeners to know or to come away with? (laughs) That's a difficult question to answer with, you know, very little time left. I know, know, I'm sorry. I can appreciate that here's a problem, is that, You have a study that identifies a hazard, and it's all, look, this causes, well, let's take glyphosate since we were talking about it in the roundup. looks like there's some, you know, IARC, in fact, the World Health Experts Expert Committee says, hey, it's probably carcinogenic humans. There's some evidence that causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But now you have the, the, one of the major manufacturers of it saying, oh, wait a minute, and they bring in their experts that they hire to say, oh, look, there's no evidence. And then that gets translated to, Controversy. There's a controversy about this. Well, you know, IARC's been, you know, doing these evaluations since 1970, and they're made up of scientists from all over the world, from many countries that sit together. In my opinion, they're fairly cautious, fairly conservative, but whenever they come up with a hazard that might, where there might be broad exposure, it's like, all of a sudden, like, well, there must be something wrong with that evaluation. So who is the public to believe? That's, that's the question. The problem. That's, that's where we are, and that, you know, that's a real problem that we have. Is You know, I think who I would believe is, uh, you know, I certainly would believe the, the government, in contrast to most manufacturers, you know, there are exceptions, but I'm saying that, you know, they have an economic benefit to identify, you know, their products is not causing any harm. I mean, I don't know how smart you have to be to figure that out. Wouldn't you want to get another unbiased opinion? I would think so. Well, I appreciate your trust in IARC, I-A-R-C, and I will provide a link to some of their reports. There are also reports that we have discussed together about red meat, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. There's one on acrylamide, certainly the one on glyphosate and a few other pesticides. And I will make sure that we have links to that information. And I just want to thank you for being my guest again. And 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank my guest again, Dr. Peter Infante, 47 years as an epidemiologist with 24 years at OSHA and prior to that at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Thank you for your service to keeping American citizens safe. Well, you're, you're welcome. I, I've tried my best over the years. Thank you. Thank you.